recall that uh, last October, not October, but October almost 18 months ago, uh, not six months ago, but was the uh, 500 year anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, and a lot was made of that in magazines and in church services. Uh, we too tried to observe um, uh, that celebration of uh, the launching of Protestantism with uh, Martin Luther's nailing of the 95 Theses. Um, but one of the things that we did, as many of you will recall, is that I introduced back then, 18 months ago, this thing called the Apostles' Creed, and it caused such a stir. And um, uh, because there were, because first of all, many of you had never been in a in a creedal church. The other thing, there was a couple of statements that were woven into it that you found quite shocking, quite new, quite alarming. And one of them we're going to look at tonight. Um, for those of you who don't know, we have been looking at the Apostles' Creed since last September, or since August, I guess, I think, I forget. But we have been looking at the Apostles' Creed for some time. We're almost done, and Lord willing, we'll be done next week. But we've come to the, to the, to the combination of sentences. Um, well, these are phrases in a larger sentence that says that we believe in the Holy Catholic Church. The communion of saints. <laughs> Boy. Uh, all of a sudden people think, oh my goodness, I'm pledging some kind of allegiance to the Pope. Uh, because I just said that I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. Well, ladies and gentlemen, um, I need to correct that. And then we'll look at some things about the church. But um, the... Uh... <laughs> Gang, first of all, the word Catholic comes from a Greek word, catholicus. Um, you know, that's a theta, which is the T-H. So you've got really C-A-T-H-O-L-I, and then Catholic. Um, the, the word Catholic is bound up in this Greek word, catholicus, which is a word translated in the Greek language, which means universal. This word was picked up in the Latin and um, there's a word that looks very much like this one in the Latin. It still means universal. Now, uh, to make sure that all of you know that I am not, um, you know, trying to hoodwink you um, and, and getting you somehow to secretly pledge allegiance to the Pope, um, I have decided to appeal to the to the. To the authority of all authorities. Um, but not that book. This one. The red one, not the black one. The Merriam-Webster's Collegiate Dictionary. Now, would you flash that up here for me, guys? Um, okay. That is an excerpt from that book, page 471. I, I don't know. But can you see it? There's the word Catholic. Do you see that? And if you read all that other stuff, you know, you get down there and uh, you finally come to of relating to or forming the church universal. Um, of relating to or forming the ancient undivided church. <clears throat> or a church claiming historical continuity from it. Guys, 
the word Catholic merely means universal. That's all it was intended. By the way, this is kind of interesting too. The Roman Catholic Church, um, when did she come into being? Well, there's a lot of debate as to, you know, of course, the Roman, the Roman Catholic Church would say they came into being in the New Testament. That's ludicrous. But um, somewhere around 400 A.D., 380 A.D., et cetera, et cetera. Do you know what the origin of the Apostles' Creed is? Maybe 150, 200 years before that. Here's the point. There was no Roman Catholic Church. There was no Pope when the Apostles' Creed was written. It never was intended to profess some kind of allegiance to Rome, to the Pope, to this church. It is simply a statement about the scope of the church. What is the scope of the church? She is universal. Some parts of the church dot the entire planet. The church, universal. So every month I have to say that. All you need to do is just get you a dictionary and and see that I have not misled you. Now, guys, so the the, the thing the, the 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 dual phrase I believe in the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints. Now, gang, do you understand that those are synonyms? Well, not, not, um, the communion of saints is a synonym for the church. The Holy Catholic Church. That part is telling you the scope of the church. She's universal. But then another part, the communion of the saints. That gives you the nature of the church. What is the church? She is a communion of the saints. Guys, that that is dear. You know, Judaism certainly didn't get the gospel right, but one of the things that she got right is, have you ever heard of this? That's an M. Uh, I think it's called a minyan. Anybody know what a minyan is in Judaism? In Judaism, you cannot have church services unless you have ten males present. So if you've got nine males present, you can't have services. If you've only got nine males, you've got to go to the other city and borrow some male, bring him over, and make ten. Then you can have services. That's called a minyan. One of the things that Judaism got right is, and I don't know where they came up with the number 10, but because the New Testament talks about where two or three are gathered, but the idea is that the church is a communion of saints. It's a group of saints who gather to be communal. There's a commonality. There's something they share What is that? Their common interest in Jesus Christ. But we are so far away from that whole idea of a communion of saints. Here's the question I get. Where's your church? You're a pastor? Where's your church? And, And of course, I know what they're asking. But I want to say, well, it depends on what time of day you're talking about. 
Because if you're talking about, you know, 10 a.m., they might be at a doctor's appointment. Or, you know, they might be teaching a class, might be making a sale, you know, might be buying groceries. Because the church is a communion of saints. But for us, it's become a building. It was never intended to be that, ladies and gentlemen. The church, by the way, um, a couple of the words that are used in the New Testament. Oh, I love this. You know what? Do you know how the, the church is described in the New Testament? She's described as a bride. <laughs> a bride. Ephesians 5. That Jesus is working on his bride to present her in, in perfection. Um, the church is called his body. Um, the Apostles' Creed calls it a communion of saints. But none of that has anything to do with a building. So ladies and gentlemen, when you make this statement, you're making no allegiance to the Pope. You're making one of the sweetest, most endearing statements of belief included in the whole creed. I believe in a church that's universal and that the nature of it is that we are bound together by a common belief in the same Savior. That's what you're saying. Um, Gang, the New Testament in in Matthew chapter 16, um, Jesus gives us a biblical guarantee that the gates of hell um, shall never prevail against his bride, the church. But there is no guarantee that the gates of hell will not be unleashed against this thing called the church. Um, we sing that song. Jimmy points it out every now and then. You know that the church shall never perish, her dear Lord to defend. Why is it that the church will never perish? First of all, he promised that in Matthew sixteen. But secondly, the dear Lord is to defend this communion of saints. She might shrink. And very frankly, ladies and gentlemen, I would suggest to you that it is my humble opinion that the church is in a season right now where she is being shaken. That is, some of the unbelief contained in the church is going to be shaken out. Um, But here's the text that I wanted to draw your attention to concerning the church, because that's what we've affirmed a belief in, this thing that is a communion of saints. But instead of being a communion of saints, we're a communion of prize fighters. The church fights all the time. We're supposed to be a communion of saints. And then in the book of Timothy, 1 Timothy, Paul is setting out some guidelines as to how the church is to be, is to operate. And that's where he talks about elders, you remember? But he says this, I, I hope to come to you soon, soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay you may know how you ought to behave, listen, in the household of God. (laughs) You know how to behave in the household of God. (laughs) Paul has to give instruction as to how to behave in the household of God. By the way, how you ought to behave in the house, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and a buttress of the truth. Now, gang, in that statement, you see that one of the functions of the church, we've seen 
her scope, she's universal. We've seen her nature that she's a community of saints. Her function is, at least in part, defined here as the pillar and the buttress of the truth. She is indeed the defender of the truth. Folks, you will come here, I hope, and you will hear things that you will hear no place else in the world. Because this place is to be a defender of the truth. By the way, she is a defender of the truth, but she is not the source of the truth. That's Rome's position. Rome tells you that all the truth that you get comes through her. No, 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 ladies and gentlemen. The truth doesn't come through the church. The, the truth comes through the, the agency of the Holy Spirit, and the church is to defend it. But it's the difference between sola scriptura, which you've heard around here before, and sola Ecclesia. Scripture alone as opposed to the church alone. Folks, this is Rome's position. That the, that the truth comes to you via the church. What Martin Luther stood for in the hall of Protestantism since him. Is that the truth comes through the scripture. And the church is the defender. We're the ones that part of our function is to defend the truth. We are the pillar and buttress, but not the source. Very frankly, folks, um, you better be glad it's arranged like that. Because men, if you're counting on a bunch of men to give you the truth, no, no, the truth is, is there. The church is just supposed to protect it and make sure it gets taught right. But she doesn't originate it, a la Rome. Now, guys, um, here's one of the ugly um, truths about the church. There is a difference between the visible and the invisible church. You know what the visible church is? Here it is right here. There it is, visible church. You know what the invisible church is? The invisible church is comprised of believers, past, present, and future. Now, it should not surprise us that there is in the visible church those who are not who do not belong to Christ. Why doesn't that shouldn't why shouldn't that surprise us? Because Jesus told us in the parable of the tares, you remember? The wheat's growing and the, tares, the enemy comes and sows uh, tares, uh, we, uh, weeds. And, uh, and they grow up side by side and they look a whole lot alike. And the difference is only known at the harvest time. Gang, there is in this room, at this moment... People who are a part of the visible church, but not a part of the invisible church. Never in the history of the church has a group gathered of this size where everyone was converted. 
To what percentage? What do you think? <laughs> I don't know. Well, the slightest idea. I know my buddy R.C. Sproul was preaching here in Memphis uh, years ago. He was preaching at Independent Presbyterian Church. And he got in the pulpit on the, on the first service. They have two services there, too. And um, he got in the, the, um, the pulpit, and he said from the pulpit, 70%. 70% of the church was not genuinely a part of the church. So John Sartell got a hold of him in between services, and he says, don't say that again. That's not, don't do that. And he went out there and he said it again. <laughs> At least that's how the story goes. That's, maybe it's apocryphal. But, um, but um, there's a visible church and there's an invisible church, folks. And there's no church anywhere that does not contain tares. That's, a, that's an interesting um, a rather upsetting truth, is it not? Here's something else that I think you need to know about the church. I think you need to know the difference between the church and the parachurch. Gang, um, the parachurch, if you, if you understand what I mean by the parachurch, that is religious agencies that are not the church. Um, things like uh, Camp's Crusade for Christ, which is now called Crew. Those are, those are Christian agencies, mightily used of God, um, but you can think of six dozen of them right here tonight. That's the parachurch versus the church. Um, the history of the church required them to define what the church was. So here's what they came up with. Three marks of the church as opposed to the parachurch. Number one, the faithful proclamation of God's truth, or God's word. Number two, the proper administration of the sacraments. And number three, the exercise of church discipline. Those were the three marks of the church as opposed to the parachurch. Now, guys, one of the reasons that I have such misgivings about the, the parachurch is this. And I'm going to give you an example. The parachurch is not answerable to the church. The church is looked to to supply all the funds for the parachurch, but the parachurch is not answerable to the church. Um, I'll tell you a story. There was a, there was a, a parachurch ministry that, <laughs> that will remain nameless. Um, and they were prone to take youth on trips. And um, in, on, the, on the trips, they provided for the youth on their trips a smoking pit where all the kids could go and smoke a cigarette. Now, guys, I, I, you know, I'm sure there's worse things than smoking a cigarette. I, you know, I'm, uh, I've never smoked before, but, but the point is, what do you think would happen here at Gracie Van if Kyle Jacobson provided a smoking pit for your kids on the youth trip? What do you think would happen? Well, but the smoking pit was provided by... And not a thing we could do about it. I mean, we could register complaints. Um, if we've ever found out about it. But that's the difference between the church and the parachurch, folks. 
um, that, 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 and there's some of them that are doing work that we simply cannot do as the church. But let me say this. The parachurch ministry has been called the unpaid bills of the church. You know what that means? That means the parachurch came into existence because the church failed. And because the church was failing in her calling, these other agencies grew up to fill in the gap. And I'm glad God raised them up. But their existence is a condemnation, is a, is a revelation of our own failure. So what should we do? We should do our job better. The church should do her job better. Um, not, not cast dispersions at the smoking pit, that, like I just did, but, um, uh, but gang, do our job better if we're the church and assign that responsibility. Now, one other thing that I want to do um, tonight, discussing the church in terms of her, her scope, her nature, her, her defender, um, one of the things that, the reason I, I'm going to do this is because it seems like when churches in Memphis get in trouble and things start going awry, it seems to me, this is just an opinion, it always happens in the world of government first. How the church is governed. It's church government that people squawk about, get in trouble with, fight over, etc. Historically, guys, there have been three ways to govern the church. The first method is called hierarchical. A hierarchical form of church government. That means that all the, the, um, the decisions are made from the top and they are, they're pushed down and filtered down. An example of a hierarchical form of church government is Rome. Let me give you another one. The Methodist church is a hierarchical form of church government. And some of you were raised in, that, in, in, in this, where, where the decisions ultimately were made at the top and were pressed down. For instance, if you were a Methodist, you remember your, your preacher, the district superintendent, would come in and move him, and you liked him, and, but he got moved. Why? Because the decision was made at the top and, and pressed down. That's, um, that's a method. I don't know where it comes from, but it's a method of church government. I'll give you another one. Or the second one is congregational. Congregational church government. Gang, um, (coughs) proponents of congregational church government uh, appeal to our American bias and call this a pure democracy. Anybody ever been a part of a congregational form of church government? What's a good example of a congregational church, church government? The Baptist Church is a, is, a, is a congregational form of church government. Is it pure democracy? Not in the slightest. <clears throat> um, but that's what congregational <clears throat> church government... Um, uh, suggests. Now, the third form of church government, let, let, me just, let me just do this, or try to do it quickly. Where do you get a church government in the New Testament? Well, I can tell you one place is Acts 15. Uh, the Jerusalem Council 
Do you remember that? And uh, all the churches from around sent representatives to Jerusalem. And they were trying to figure out, are we going to make two new converts be circumcised? And so Peter spoke and Paul spoke. Ultimately, who was in charge of that, con- that, that, that council in uh, Acts 15? His name was James, not Peter. That's really interesting, folks. If Peter was the first pope, at the first pope meeting, he wasn't in charge. Because James was. But what do you see there? You see churches sending representatives to a larger court in which decisions are made. Now, where else can you find hints of church government? You can find them in the whole book of 1 Timothy. But you can find them in 1 Timothy 3, which is a discussion of the qualifications for elder. So the third form of church government is a government called Presbyterian. And it comes from the Greek word presbyteros, which um, is translated elder or bishop. Folks, when you call me a Presbyterian, you're not saying a word about my theology. You're saying something about my government. If you have gone to a church that is governed by elders, you're going to a Presbyterian church. It might have something else on the, on the marquee. But a, 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 an elder-led church is a Presbyterian form of government. That's all this word is. It's, it's a, a, a reference to your government. So, um, it has been the intention of many to try and go to the New Testament and find out how should the church be governed. Do you see a hint of pure democracy in the, in the church? Oh, come on, y'all. I mean, Paul goes from town to town and he appoints what? Elders. Um, do you see a pope in the church? Even Paul or Peter? No, you don't see any pope. What you see is instructions about elders, and then there was controversy. Those elders all came to the same place, and those elders made a meeting, uh, made a decision about controversial subjects. That, ladies and gentlemen, is called Presbyterian government. And very frankly, I want you to know something. (laughs) In that regard, this is a Presbyterian church. Presbyterian in the sense that she is steered by elders, governed by elders. And that, I think, is is the closest thing that you can find in the New Testament to how the communion of saints is supposed to function. Um... Now, uh, let me say a couple more things and I'm done. Um, I want to read you a quote from A.W. Tozer. Because this is, um, A.W. Tozer was one of my heroes. And, and, and Tozer wrote this, gosh, in the 50s. In the 50s now. Maybe the 60s. But he says this, and I'm quoting. <laughs> he says, worship services today are a sort of sanctified nightclubbing with the alcohol, no, without the alcohol and the dressed-up drunks at the bar. I really botched that. I'm going to read it again. <laughs> Worship services today are a sort of a sanctified nightclubbing without the alcohol and the dressed-up drunks at the bar. 
Now, Tozer said that 50, 60 years ago. What do you think he would say about worship services in the main today? What, what do you think he'd say? Gang, um, um, I, I don't think this, this is uh, limited to, to my world, but there are most who would say that, that worship should be limited and prescribed. Uh, right, uh, prescribed. Uh, the point is, not everything is allowable in a worship service. Would you be all right with a pole dancer? But what if she was singing, Jesus loves me? What if the words over the pole said, believe in Jesus? I mean, folks, that's, that's, a, pretty, that's a pretty slippery slope. Um, maybe you could say, you could dress her up real modestly and say we're going to celebrate the beauty of the female body or something. Does anybody believe that? But if, if all you say is, if we get the words right, everything's, no, ladies and gentlemen. There have to be some limits. Now, I'm not the limit giver, but worship is limited and prescribed. Okay, so where do we go to find out what we can we do in worship? Where do we go? Um, the Red Book. No. What do you find them doing in Acts chapter 2, verse 42? Early church, post-Pentecost. What do you find them doing? They're devoted to the apostles' teaching. They're spending time in fellowship and in prayer. Okay, well, we're pretty safe with those things, are we? Devoted to instruction of the apostles, fellowship, and... Um, prayer. That's what you see the church doing in Acts chapter 2. Okay, um, here's something else I think you could very easily defend. All you got to do is go to the book of Psalms. That music and singing um, designed to be worshipful, that is something that can be included in a worship service. Now beyond that, ladies and gentlemen, you have to be very careful of what of what goes on. Um, when I was in Ocala, Florida, I mean, you're not going to like this story, but I'm the bad guy, so you can all talk bad about, me on the, bad about me on the way home. There was, um, we had a youth program on Thursday nights called the Thursday Nighter, and it was the hottest thing in the city. It was just in the summertime, Thursday Nighter, and I mean, we had 400 kids coming on a Thursday night, and we, we did this thing where um, if you were a first-timer, you had to stay with me, and I preached the gospel, and then we had these college kids who taught courses all up and down the church. I mean, five or six courses that would, and, and, and you could, if, as a, if you came, you could attend whatever course you wanted. But if you were a um, uh, first-timer, you had to stay with me, and, and I just preached the gospel. Well, of course, we started with some music and some fun stuff, and there was this one guy that came, and he would sit right in the middle, and he would take the newspaper, and he would open up the newspaper and sit in the middle of all this going on 
and read the newspaper. You okay with that? I wasn't. <laughs> and I told him to take his newspaper and get out and don't come back. So now you can talk bad about me. But ladies and gentlemen, here's the point. The things that are going on in a worship service that are, sub, that are intended to improve and enliven and bring health to the people of God, it is more important that the body be, um, be protected than the, I guess you would call them rights of the single. I, I, I'm simply saying in a worship service, there are things that can go on that will do nothing but damage everybody. I mean, do you think it would be all right for somebody to listen to um, uh, U2, the singing group, uh, on their phone while everything's going on? I mean, would we not have to get that stopped? Um, Because worship is limited and prescribed. That may be new things to think about for you. But the issue is, that the, this, this, this bride of Christ, that Christ is seeking to shape in such a way that he can present her faultless, uses things like the proclamation, the singing of spiritual hymns, prayer, and fellowship. If you want to include something else, be sure you can make some kind of sound biblical argument for it. Those things, we know we're safe. Gang, we are professing a confidence in an organization that is ordained by God. There's only three of those, you know. Did you know that? Family, government, and the church. This communion of saints. She's bruised. But she will flourish when persecuted. Because her dear Lord has promised to defend her. Let's pray. Oh God, might this be a place where your people flourish? Might it be a place where men and women can attend to the apostles' teaching from your word? Might they find the richest kind of fellowship here? And... and meaningful, believing prayer being offered? Might the music glorify you? And might she be governed in such a way that God's people feel safe? Do all that, Father, not because we deserve it, but because the bride is so terribly valuable to you. Might she never be harmed. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. There is dessert. Um, uh, It's coming. So stick around.